Welcome to the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution. Listen to interviews with the most influential people in the insurance industry. Learn the most important strategies, tactics, trends, and challenges facing today's independent insurance agents and brokers. New episodes every Wednesday. Visit agencyrevolution.com and click media to explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers. Subscribe today and get updates delivered right to your inbox. And now, without further delay, the Connected Insurance Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Jans, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Connected Insurance Podcast presented by Agency Revolution, creators of the most powerful marketing and communication software built specifically to meet the needs of insurance agencies and brokerages. If you believe that the relationship you have with your clients is the heart of the business, and I'm sure you do, then you need to see how Agency Revolution can make those relationships stronger and longer. Visit agencyrevolution.com and request a demo of their award-winning software. And uh, again, I want to welcome you to this episode. Uh, this, uh, Of course, this is a special time. This is a serious time, and we've attempted, uh, well, I've been lucky. I've had a uh, very, very generous guest, top of the field, offer to spend time with me and hence with you delivering information about things that I think right now we uh, need to pay attention to the most the things that matter the most Uh, so if you've missed any podcast in the last five or six weeks grab it listen to it we've had conversations about the potential economic impact of the COVID uh, virus on uh, well on the industry and on your agency how to protect technology um, as people go remote, a, ver- a critical issue uh, protecting not just the technology, but protecting your data, protecting your customers' data, uh, how to respond to uh, questions about um, insurance coverages that uh, will probably arise during this period, um, issues affecting leadership. I think it's safe to say, as our guest said, in that episode, uh, I think it was last week, Gene Salvatore, that this is the period that makes or breaks your reputation and conceivably really your agency in many ways. And uh, and then the, clearly there's another issue that I wanted to deal with. Um, well, the issue of uh, how to do remote, how to do it right, uh, how to how to have remote employees in such a manner that uh, it's not a it doesn't have to be second best. It doesn't have to be worse than. Um, and I think um, many agencies, modern agencies, uh, have already discovered that in a lot of ways, remote is better than. A uh, word about that. I think as I've witnessed agencies struggling in this period, it's clear that uh, what I call the modern agency was uh, better able to adapt to uh, this particular crisis. And I'll share with you four reasons why. Uh, one is because they adapt well. They already made a significant change, most of them. Um, from um, you know, good old-fashioned, old school to uh, a modern agency. Two, they embrace technology, and technologies are uh, critical to success in this period. Three, they uh, most likely they had the tools already to be able to instantaneously uh, and elegantly communicate with their customer base to provide them confidence and comfort. And then number four. Uh, they very likely had remote employees, so I do. So that's the focus of this conversation. Uh, if you would connect with uh, follow Agency Revolution on LinkedIn. If you haven't done it already, connect with me on LinkedIn. I've um, reviewed the material, the insight, the conversation, some of the off-the-record conversations that I've had in the last few weeks about this crisis, uh, and uh, my own experience uh, in the industry and experience in leadership. Um, I've uh, developed a very simple tool. I call it the eight-step COVID-19 survival toolkit for the modern insurance agency to help you get through the next 90 days, uh, get through easier and end up stronger. If you want a copy of it, happy to share it with you. Um, When you reach out to me on LinkedIn, say, uh, I'd like a copy of that thing, uh, the eight-step thing or the toolkit. (laughs) I'll know what you're talking about. It should be ready. this week. So now without further ado, I want to introduce you to David Heinemeyer Hansen. He is, um, well, of some um, global fame, a best-selling author of, number, of a number of books, uh, recognized by Google as the Hacker of the Year, recognized by um, Le Mans Racing as the Rookie of the Year, 
creator of the popular Ruby on Rails um, web development framework. So um, he's done a he's done a great deal in his career. But the reason that we have this conversation today is discuss is to discuss how insurance agencies can um, master remote work um, and not just um, grin and bear it <laughs> and not make mis not make the common mistakes that a, a lot of uh, a lot of businesses do with it. Um, I've been uh, I've been remote off and on for 25 years uh, and have team I've had team members remote for about 10 years from Maine to Vietnam. And now um, with my um, uh, advisory, uh, my team is remote from um, the Washington State, New Mexico, California, Oregon. Uh, so this was a relatively easy transition transition for me. Uh, words maybe are not that easy, but the transition's easy. Uh, it doesn't change my lifestyle much, as you probably know. I live out in the middle of the desert, um, and uh, it's a pretty quiet lifestyle. So f for me to socially distance, um, it's just not difficult out here. But I know that people have struggled with this issue of remote, and I wanted to bring the best of the best, and I think we have them. So uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce you to David Heinmeier Hansen. David, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm delighted about this. It was very generous of you. Uh, as you may have noticed uh, in a previous communication I had with you, I'm recommending your book Remote as uh, for my book of the month club. <laughs> so thank you. So yes. well, there. Um, so there are more insurance agents reading it perhaps th uh, this week than in who knows the history of the book. Um, possibly, in spite of the fact that I've been recommending it for a long time. Um, actually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a very quick, funny story, and then we can proceed with the, with the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, I've been a remote worker for roughly 25 years. When I, when, as an entrepreneur, when my business started to get a little traction, I thought that the best thing in the world was the fact that uh, in our new home, I'd, I'd converted one of the extra bedrooms into an office and that my window overlooked the park. And I just, you know, this was 25 years ago. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, and and it's a little bit embarrassing to say this, but um, I, I reserved, it wasn't conscious, but I reserved that privilege for me. <laughs> so I, I never thought about... Um, about sharing the privilege of remote work with with my with my team. So about it, it, I can't remember when your book came out, Remote, but 2013. It, so so it was around 2013. <laughs> um, I had been uh, training like my number two in the marketing department. He was you know kind of my right my right arm, my lieutenant in marketing. His wife uh, became pregnant. And he said, Michael, she really wants to move back to Washington State. And I went, oh, no, man, I've invested a year in you. And uh, and now you're going to go? And, uh, you know, I, I probably, you know, grumped around the office and, and ran into my, at that point, my president. And she said, well, just go remote. And, you know, and I probably went through the same objections, concerns, worries, anxieties that uh, that everybody else has. Uh, which is like, uh, well, how do I manage this person? Because now at least when I walk in, in those rare times when I walk in the office, I can see that, that Josh has his head down in the cubicle, right? And so she said, get the book. And so I got the book um, and it was a terrific guidebook for setting up our company's remote. Uh, it was a relatively young company and, and in sure tech, uh, my listeners will be familiar with it, Agency Revolution. Um, the company that uh, presents this podcast. And then uh, really fairly rapidly, we went remote. Like we realized that our best, when our best talent had to move, we kept them. So fairly quickly, we ended up as a remote company. Um, you, you know, we had a, still had a small office, but there were people from Maine to Colorado to Utah to uh, a fairly, our engineers, uh, not third party, they were employees were uh, and are still in Vietnam. So, boom, um, your, your book was uh, a turning point for me, and, uh, and I thank you for that. That's wonderful to hear, and it's yeah. very similar to our story at Basecamp. I mean, we started out uh, about 20 years ago. I 
got connected with Jason Fried, my business partner at the company, sending in him an email. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. He was in Chicago, Illinois. We started working together seven time zones apart and spent a good four years working <laughs> together remotely before I even moved to the U.S. Yeah, yeah, so no, for us, I, it was always yeah. that uh, from the start. Had you met? Uh, him or um... no no <laughs> we started working off email entirely i think it was probably six months until we spoke on the phone we just used email and, and instant messaging That's back hilarious. in 2001 and and got the got the whole thing going now um, am i right that that you came to his attention because you were a game designer yeah, uh, there, there's something in there. Um, okay. I used to do game <laughs> journalism back in yeah. sort of the the mid to late 90s. And that's how I learned about the Internet and how I got started with the Internet. But by the time I hooked up with Jason, I had learned to program because I wanted to make game websites. Uh -huh. And um, I, I started I, I wrote Jason back because he was also learning how to program. He was trying to build his own software and. Um, he found that it was simply just easier to hire me than it was to learn how to program. So we started working together, and um, and here we are, 20 years later, still working together. Um, and and quite quickly, we we started working on Basecamp, which is the software that we right. still make and sell today. Uh, what 17 years after we uh, we started working on it together. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, David, as you may recall, I think it's been. Well, here's what happened is I realized that given the current circumstances, which, you know, obviously, I mean, we're, this is why we're having this conversation. So many of, uh, of uh, my listeners, our audience, uh, are being forced into a remote situation um, without, uh, without it being a strategic decision. In many cases, it was the governor's decision. Um, and yet they really provide uh, what a lot of people would consider to be essential services. So... Um, uh, and, and I thought, well, who, who else should I talk to other than you? And, uh, you know, we, you and I had a conversation. It seems like it's been nine or 10 years. So it was before the book remote came out. I think it was perhaps stimulated by one of your previous books. Um, and, and at that point we talked largely about, oh, it's just some of the principles of success and the things that made your company so successful. Um, but for today's conversation, the issues of remote, I think, are, um, well, they're more than just of interest. They're really quite serious. And to some extent, there's a level of urgency about that. So um, let's, uh, let, let's, I want to start at the very beginning and kind of a, a sort of big picture paradigm on this thing. It seems that, um, oh, you know, most of us who grew up in this culture, uh, in the Western culture, will think that, uh, that work means office. Um, and that if you have a job, uh, in most cases, you know, if it's a white collar job or, 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 you know, a professional or paraprofessional job, it will be in an office. Um, it, perhaps that served uh, industry well, but it does seem that a, uh, um, you know, a, a, obviously there's a, a significant point of transition. What, why do you think, why do you think um, that uh, that paradigm is so strong? I think that's a good question. It's one I've been trying to answer from a lot of different angles over the years. But I think what I've come down to is a lot of it is simply inertia. Um, people who've come up working in an office, they will think, well, that's how it is. Like they've been brought up through that uh, almost aesthetic of what work is and have simply just kept it because like that is what work is. And and that inertia can carry people very far. It's It's one of the foundational principles of, of innovation teaching in general, um, Clayton Christensen's uh, The Innovator's yeah. Dilemma. Um, they're all about this, about what happens to companies who run on inertia. And this is what most companies do most of the time. They look at what worked yesterday and they think it's going to work today too. And when it comes to remote work, it's just one of those things that just like any other disruptive uh, pattern or methodology, it sneaks up upon you because the first people who start working remotely aren't sort of the large companies, right? They're the ones who move the, right. the last. And and they're the ones that uh, lots of people look up to. They look to it, oh, well, so how does this big company or how, the, how does that big company do it? 
And then if it's good enough for the big uh, companies, it's probably good enough for us too. Well, that's a really conservative, slow way <laughs> of approaching learning in general, because what works for a big company uh, may not work at all, right? It, 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 they're doing it not because it's the most efficient, uh, productive way of working. It's simply because that's how they work, and they just happen to be a big company for all sorts of other reasons. And There's the, a great and book seemed- called... Yeah. Well, it would seem that there would be tremendous risk for a middle manager to say, hey, I'm going to do something with my team nobody else is doing and hopefully it'll work out, which is I'm going to shut the office and send everybody home. Exactly. And I think that they get stuck in that sandwich where the people at the top are often the last to know. When you ask anyone who works sort of at an entry level of a company, they often have far better insight into the actual culture and workings of that company than even the CEO does. We have this saying of the CEO is the last to know, which is true on just a wide range of topics and particularly true, I think, about remote work. Because once you reach sort of the upper echelons of, of being an executive, your workday is different, right? You, you don't do the same th- things as someone yeah. who, who's doing sort of the work itself, the actual things that's making mm-hmm. the business turn. And when you get removed from that work, I think you also get removed from the perspective of, what, of how that work happens best. Oftentimes, the best people who to, to design how the work should be is the people doing the work. Right. But they're very rarely entrusted with the power to shape the organization itself and how it should work. So that was one of those, those reasons of why I got to be so passionate about remote work, because in the early 2000s, I worked for a number of tech companies where I was just an employee. I didn't have any say. I didn't have the power to dictate how we should work. And very often, I, I would marvel at the fact that I could sit with me and my coworkers and have a very clear picture of what we needed to do to change this organization to be a far better place to work, to be a more productive, more competitive company. And yet somehow the executives were oblivious to this. And that really left a mark on me to the point where when I started my own company or or joined uh, Basecamp and kind of became an executive myself, I kept going back to that is what would I do if I was still a worker? Well, one thing was I, I retained my hand in the business of, of still doing the work, not right. filling my time only with executive duties of, of managing the work, but actually doing the work and then letting that guide how the company should be organized. And what was very clear from the get-go with Jason and I was that remote work was this incredible secret that gave us access to these incredible things. You mentioned the retention, being able to keep employees that are really good just because they move. We've had that happen over and over and over again at Basecamp over the years. But it's not only being able to retain the employees you already have. It's also about having access to a much, much larger pool of potential employees and being able to find much better people (laughs) because you're no longer constrained to just what, uh, a 45 minutes commute from Chicago? How many people is that? Three million, four million people? Well, we, yeah. you know. <laughs> so I, we, I was in Bend, Oregon, you know, with our insure tech. So, you know, the, the population, you know, let's say 90,000. Exactly, right? Are, are you yes. going to find the best people in the world within those 90,000? Maybe, but probably not, right? When yeah. we put up a job posting at Basecamp, we're looking at, a, at, at potentially a billion people who can apply. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think that that just uh, changes the dynamics to, to such an extreme extent that um, we took it for granted that this was simply just, of course, the way things should be. And that was how the book came about, yeah. that I had a number of conversations with other tech executives in 2010, 2011, 2012, where I would keep making the case for remote work and I would keep hearing really poor excuses as to why they weren't doing it in their companies. And it was the same excuses over and over again. It was things like, oh, magic only happens if we're in the same room at the same time. Um, it's not possible to build a culture if, if you don't have everyone around the same lunch table. All these shallow, ill-thought-through arguments for why remote doesn't work. Even when I was talking to someone who I was friendly with who knew that we at Basecamp had been working like this for many, many years. And presumably didn't think that we lacked any magic or we lacked any productivity or even success. Um, And I thought, do you know what? Let's write this down. 
Let's write down the mm-hmm. complete argument for why this needs <laughs> well, to happen. Well, it does seem that the objections it. are the, the objections are almost instantaneous. Yes. And they and and in, at least in my experience, and maybe you have maybe I mean I'm, I'm sure people talk to you about this all the time. In my experience, they, they fall into a couple of categories. One is how do I manage them? How do I know that they're getting work done? Okay. And then the other one is uh, the magic. You know, it's like. Oh, you know, culture and innovation and, you know, kind of rubbing up against each other. All the, you know, these incredible things happen when people are with people. Uh, yes. And, yeah. and I think that those objections, they come so quickly because they, they don't come from the intellect. They come from the lizard brain. They come from sort of survival, primal ideas about how people should work together. And I like to say it's almost like this caveman uh, um, perception where line of sight is taken literally like i have to see this person sitting in front of a computer banging on the keys to have a sense that i trust that they're working which is really a profoundly sad perspective (laughs) on work from so many angles at the same time one it's just mistaken if if you don't know if you don't think that people can waste their time sitting in front of a computer in an office all day well you know what i I have a bridge somewhere (laughs) to sell you because that is simply the lived experience of hundreds of millions of people in offices around the world every single day there's a great book uh called bullshit jobs that uh, did a, a broad study on how many people think that they essentially don't do anything of value every single day that they come to work. And the figure is somewhere between 30 and 40%. I mean, it's truly shocking. Um, and and I, I, I know this because I observed this. When I was an employee at, at other companies, I would see these people who just, they came to work every day. They sat in front of a computer for eight hours or in some cases even more. And at the end of the week, I could not tell you what they had achieved. And this is exactly the lived experience of so many people. So this idea that just because you get someone into the office and you pluck them down in front of a computer or a phone, that they're going to be productive, is just wrong. Like literally, simply wrong. So um, well, let, let's, let's knock these objections down uh, so we can, you know, kind of move on to how to make it work. So, so this notion of management by seeing is, is foolish. Very foolish. And I think it's even it's even more than foolish. It's based upon a fundamental insecurity about your own capacity to evaluate work. If there is one uh, qualification that you need as a manager of others, it is to be able to assess the quality of the work. And when you rely on these uh, other metrics, as in how long does someone spend in front of the computer? Are they staying late? Are they showing up early? you're essentially revealing the fact that you don't know the work. You can't assess the quality of the work because if you could, you wouldn't be relying on these auxiliary indicators as to whether someone is doing a good job or not. If you evaluate the work, you will very quickly realize that the people who sort of have the most bravado about how dedicated they are to the work, they're very rarely also the people who put in the best work. Uh, And what we found over and over again is that the people who need to shout the loudest about how much of a workaholic they are, they're covering up for other insecurities that that reveal that, like, you know what? This isn't actually great work, and, and it isn't actually bringing the organization forward, or it appears to be great work because they're basically just stuffing the liabilities of the, of the mess that they're creating onto other people's plate, and this happens all the time as well. So I think as a manager, you have to look yourself in the mirror when you think, hey, I need to be able to see this person to know if they're working first, accept that that's a flawed notion. Second, think about why can't you just look at the work? Why does it matter where it's done? And if you can look at the work and you can examine the quality of the work, you can relax so much about this um, uh, lack of trust that you really have, right? Because that's what it really boils down to. A lot of it is that you don't trust your employees. You think that the second you literally turn your back, they're just going to slack off. And you know what? Why are you hiring people you don't trust? Why are you employing people you don't trust? What I find is that most employees, most of the time, are trustworthy. And you should err on the side of trusting people you employ. If you have reason to believe that they're not trustworthy, if you have evidence to, to that fact, get rid of them. 
hire people that you do trust. And then once you've hired those people, it is actually incumbent on your management to ensure that the company itself is trustworthy. This is what I see over and over again, is that uh, companies worry so much about whether the, the people they employ are trustworthy, they forget to think about whether they as an organization and they as a management team are exhibiting any qualities worthy of that trust. And most of the time, that's not, that's not the case. I worked at a, sub, at a bunch of software companies, as I said, in the early 2000s, and, mm-hmm. and several incidents sort of scarred me from that perception of no trust. One of those things were the expense reports. So for me to do my job, I occasionally needed to buy a piece of software or to buy a book about software development. And the amount of red tape I had to cut through to get authorization to use the company credit card for that expense for was simply just <laughs> exactly right. We would be I would waste hours, which I mean, even at my meager salary that uh, back then was still worth far, far more than the expense of it. But the company was so insecure about whether someone was going to rip them off or spend on things they shouldn't spend on that they put up these incredible barriers to be able to just get the work done. And that was just Mm-hmm. emblematic of an organization that failed to trust its employees and ended up paying through the nose for that privilege. It is so much cheaper to go with a basic notion of trust and then deal with whatever abuse there may or may not come from that. The vast, vast majority of the time, there will be no such abuse. And if there is any abuse, it's negligible. Like it, it won't cost anything to clean that up compared to how much it's costing to attempt to prevent it. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to that. Don't just blindly trust someone with complete access to a million dollar account. Uh, have some basic ideas of, of uh, verification in place. Perhaps that's doubly true in insurance. Um, but make sure that the, the sort of the bar is sufficiently high, um, sufficiently high to the point where the employee basically gets the impression, hey, here's a business that actually believes me. Uh Here's a business that actually trusts me, and I will return the favor. Okay. Um, Well, as a note of hope for our listeners, when when, uh, my uh, marketing lieutenant, when Josh went remote, um, our productivity went up. And, and the solution largely was one, well, I had to figure out what, what what's my expectation of. So in other words, if I'm going to invest X into th- this position and the support, you know, benefits and tools, technology for the position, what am I expecting for a return? So I, had, I just had to sit down and think that through um, and identify uh, key performance indicators or KPIs that would that, w- that would allow me to measure that and then negotiate those with Josh. That was the first thing we did. Then we established a cadence of communication. Um, uh, so we had, uh, I think, as I recall, we had weekly sprints. Uh, the sprints may have been for two or three weeks, but we had a weekly, a weekly check-in. We weren't doing like daily stand-ups in that position. Um, and then we invested in the right kind of tools so that we could communicate with each other on things other than having a telephone call that allowed us to, you know, transmit data and information and, and uh, content back and forth. So in my experience, um, everything got better because I was challenged to think intelligently about uh, what I wanted as a manager. So that so boom, uh, hopefully that. Um, yeah, it, it's, I'm not saying it's easy. It's relatively simple. Um, but I, I think uh, everybody who's in this position as a manager, they simply need to get really clear on, on uh, what they're expecting from that position and find ways to be able to measure it. It's work. So like you said, I wrote that one down. Look at the work. Um, so the second objection that seems to arise quite um, instantaneously and automatically is this notion of we need to be, you know, like rubbing elbows. We need to bump up against each other. We need to be in the same room. We need to go eyeball to eyeball and, and magical things happen. Um, how, how do you answer that one? Well, I think first by reassuring people that just because you go remote and you start working remotely, it doesn't mean that you can't ever see each other face to face. First of all, video uh, conferencing technology has gotten really good to the point where it's within 98% of sitting in a room together. But then even the last 2% still matter. So at Basecamp, when it's not a global pandemic, um, we meet up 
twice a year, the entire company, we get together, we spend a week together to replenish those social connections. Because that's really what most of this quote-unquote magic covers. It's not the productivity. It's the social bonds. It's the human bonds. And those are really important. And those deserve to be nourished. And most companies where they working in an office, that just sort of happens automatically and people don't have to think mm -hmm. too much about it. And yeah. I think that's exactly the same as what you said about this other case about declaring what the work should be and finding out that you actually get higher productivity. The method or, or the process of going remote is simply the process of leveling up your organization. All the things that are required of a remote organization are also beneficial for any organization. It is simply a higher state, a more informed, a more considered uh, a place of organizational theory. If you, if you had sort of a, a, a ladder you could climb, remote is just higher up because it forces you to think all these things through, things you just took for granted or you didn't even think about, you didn't even consider. Um, so I, I think that that steps in, that you still need those social bonds. But then the other thing is that a lot of these uh, social connections that need to happen on a daily basis, they don't need to happen face-to-face. -face. You can replace so many of them with other means of communication. As I said, video conferencing is one. We also use uh, chat rooms. I know that um, mm -hmm. Slack and, and other chat tools, yeah. Basecamp, the product yeah. that we sell has Slack, mm -hmm. uh, has um, has chat built in. And that's an important thing to just sort of have that loose conversation, that social connection during the day. Maybe you're sharing a link to something funny or posting a picture or something else like that. Just these uh, and, uh, oiling the wheels of, of the social uh, connections. That's great. You can do so much of that remotely as well. It's just about picking the right tools and setting up a process where that happens. Here's a, a quick follow-up story to your uh, reference about uh, video communications. My, <clears throat> my wonderful assistant, Jenny, lives and works uh, remotely in New Mexico, and I live and, remotely, uh, live and work remotely in the foothills uh, of uh, the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. Uh, she w was on my team for a year. We've been doing video conferencing probably once a week, um, uh, you know, uh, chat communications throughout the week, uh, you know, different forms of collaboration, different tools that we would use to pass uh, projects back and forth and manage projects. And then um, my wife, Teresa, and I went to Santa Fe for uh, the Christmas holidays. She's in New Mexico. So you know, naturally, I made arrangements to you know, get together with Jenny, meet her for the very first time. And when she walked in, it was like, oh, I, it wasn't like, oh, I'm meeting you for the first time. No, it was just like, I'm seeing you again. Because I'd already seen her like, you know, 50, 60 times on, on video chats. And, and it's really quite remarkable when you have access to face and voice, you have a lot of human connection that's well, was previously unavailable. And, and I agree with you, the quality of, of video communication has, has gotten quite good. Um, so social bonding can happen. <laughs> but then, but then, when I had the when I was actually in the in the same region, uh, it did it totally made sense to like connect with her, not as a teammate and, and as a friend. Absolutely, and I think that when you're used to getting into the office five days a week and and doing that, it's very hard to imagine that there is this other world that's possible. And as you say, it's those kinds of experience where you actually try it and you realize, oh, not only is this not so bad. It's actually better in so many ways. And I think that it's one of those things, it's, it's hard to convey to someone through a purely intellectual argument. They actually have to live it to truly mm -hmm. believe it. And I yeah. think that that is the hidden benefit, perhaps, of this crisis that we have right now. A lot of people are being forced to experience these things. They're for, being forced to experience new things that they wouldn't otherwise have tried on their own. Now that they're being forced to have a taste of this, they may go like, huh, actually, this is not so bad. I kind of like it. Maybe when we go back to the office, it won't be five days a week. It'll be two days a week. Or as you say, uh, maybe when someone declares that they have to move to another city, I'll let them work remotely. All these benefits that spill out of being forced to essentially try it now when they have no other choice. 
Well, this is an interesting conversation that I know uh, it's banging around inside the heads of a lot of uh, insurance agency principals right now. And some of them have shared it with me in that they're thinking, you know, they're already getting the questions from remote workers. Hey, this is working out pretty well. Are we going to be able to keep this up after we all get back together? Um, and it's, it is very interesting to listen closely to some of the reactions. And some of them are reactionary. Um, <laughs> I, I think some people are seeing this as um, a, I mean, and there is a lot of pain associated with it, but the the uh, forced remote as being a painful period we'll get through and I can't wait to get back to the office. And then others, um, maybe I'll say a little more enlightened, um, who are thinking, wow, we're, we are learning. Uh, we're not mastering perhaps, but we are learning how to be a productive team under any circumstance. And there are uh, some advantages to this. And my remote workers uh, do seem to be taking quite well to this. Um, and and they're, uh, they're knocking this question around, how, how will we deal with this uh, when the governor says it's time to go back to work, go back yeah, to the office? I think this is one of those crises. You can either think, oh, I just have to suffer through it, or you can look at it as an opportunity. We can level up as an organization. We can get better. We can do things more efficiently. It's funny. I'm on the other side buying quite a lot of insurance products. And one of the things I've realized is that there's a great um, sort of divide between the kind of insurance buyers who want that essentially in-office experience mm -hmm. and then the people like me who I have not sat foot in the office of my insurance agent out here in, in Malibu, even though they handle um, large accounts on my, apart, uh, my, uh, my account. Um, yeah. And that's how I want it. Right. So there's this, there's an entire um, segment of the market that's only going to be growing who actually want the remote work experience in their customer relations, right? I am thrilled if I can do all my business with my insurance agent over email and if it's something that's an emergency over text and truly the house better be burning if we're having a phone call. Yeah, okay. So for, for our listeners, we'll understand the value of having a communication methodology that's integrated with the agency management system. So the, the right message goes to the right person at the right time. Uh, perhaps a conversation for a different time. Uh, but one thing that we did notice, I, like uh, hopefully, uh, like when this crisis emerged, your agent was able to reach out to you quickly and say, hey, here's how we're doing business. Here's how you can reach us. We're still here, that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, clearly one of the things that we noticed was that um, the modern agent, quote unquote, uh, had the tools and, that allowed them to deliver uh, critical information uh, quickly in a way that people are uh, relatively receptive to receive. Yeah, I would say I was already in a remote working relationship with my agent. Yeah. Um, I had already expressed my clear preferences for mm -hmm. um, how to communicate. Um, so in in that sense, I, I don't actually even know if I've, I've spoken to my agent um, since this started because I didn't have any new business. I, well, I, like I 86% was... of insurance consumers don't want an inbound phone call from yes. their insurance provider. Yes. Uh, so, so that, that's why yeah, we I think that was actually the most important thing my agent did when this crisis broke. Uh -huh. They didn't contact me because I'll tell you the number of emails I've gotten for from a variety of companies that I might have bought something from three years ago who wanted to express their stance on the COVID-19 thing where I went like, this is a crisis. There's a lot of people in my life I am interested in hearing from my family, uh, my close co-workers, or all sorts of people. Do you know what? Not the person I bought something from three years ago. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I want to circle back to the the objections because I do think there's one more. And it, oh, maybe it overlaps a lot with this you know kind of uh, culture magic, we need to be in the same room thing. But um, I, uh, an objection that I do hear sometimes is that uh, people feel like uh, owners, entrepreneurs, um, insurance agency principals, that they feel uh, that they don't know how to lead without uh, being present with people, uh, that they're, you know, that they don't feel like they can lead by email, uh, for example. Um, and so how do you how do you respond to that one? I think it's a good question. And I think a lot of people have confused charisma with leadership. There are a lot of 
people who are very charismatic in person and they lean on that a lot as a as a stop for leadership that to me is not really leadership leadership is setting the course taking the actions taking the right actions at the right time and letting the results speaks for themselves right most people or, or a lot of companies do these things like they do mission statements and they write up these broad grand uh, statements about what they do and what they value and then if you ask anyone on the floor again someone at the lower ranks of the organization hey is, is this what the company actually does and they're like Puh. If you only knew, right? So <laughs> oftentimes you actually end up doing more harm than good when you try to codify things that aren't so. Um, it's kind of like I, I have this uh, picture seared in my mind where I went into an enterprise rental company somewhere in Florida. And on the wall behind was the mission statement for the rental uh, or the enterprise rental and it was stuff like the customer's always right and this is and what happened when I started having some issue with my car and I was forced to hackle with them it just aggravated the situation right <laughs> you end up aggravating situations when you put bullshit up on the board that isn't true and you're aggravated for com for customers and you're aggravated for employees so yeah. Focus less on like the bravado of leadership and focus more on leadership in terms of what the actions are. Now, some of leadership, of course, is also communication. And it's totally fair to say that some people are simply more comfortable uh, with verbal communication rather than written communication. Mm -hmm. But this, again, is one of those opportunities where learning how to become a better writer, that's a skill you can acquire. It is not an impossibility. You can start today. And you can start practicing writing. And right now, when we're all stuck at home, you probably will have to. And that's not a chore. It's a, it's a gift. It's an opportunity for you to become a better writer. And as we just talked about, as, as sort of the customer base um, shifts and more communication with customers as well move into writing, you're going to have to do and deal with that anyway. Employees, maybe you can just tell them what to do and you can tell them how to listen. Customers, not so much. Yeah. Okay. Well, I agree with you. The ability to write is a superpower and it's certainly been kind to me. So uh, to the extent that I could do it, uh, I, I do invest in it and continue. To, I, I keep thinking I, I uh, might, uh, might be getting better at it and I've been doing it for a long time. Practice. Um, well, practice and I think, perfect. I think for entrepreneurs, it's a, uh, it's, it's a skill set that you just don't see it like on a list of, you know, like skills entrepreneurs need. Um, but it's, it's a fundamental communication and leadership skill. Um, so I, I'll agree with you. I think it's, um, you know, there, there are skills that we need to learn now, perhaps that we didn't need to know before. Uh, there are a bunch of them <laughs> and, and the capacity to communicate in writing is, is one of them. Um, so I want to, I want to ask you uh, a couple of other questions, David, before we wind up. One is, um, I want to I want to uh, speak to the challenges that the worker, uh, not the manager, but the worker may have. You know, admittedly, a lot of people are all of a sudden they're home. They didn't have an office set up and they got three kids that are, you know, that they need snacks and lunch and diapers changed and God knows what else. Um, so there are you know, there are some immediate challenges. But uh, for some people, uh, it, you know, it's the first time perhaps in their career they've actually worked remotely. Um, so I, I guess I'd split this into two, two chunks. How can managers support them? And then um, what do you think, what would you say to the worker who's like, this is a, a uncomfortable and new? Yeah, I'd say first, the majority burden here falls on managers and employers that they have to acknowledge and recognize reality. And reality is that no one right now can put in 100%. It doesn't matter whether they actually have the technology to do the work. The work is not going to be at 100%. You have to simply lower your level of ambition and you have to lower your level of expectations. Because if you don't, what you force employees into doing is pretending. They're going to be pretending that they can still put in 100%. They're going to be pretending that it's, it's no big deal. And that's a terrible place to be. Like, we shouldn't be pretending that we can do 100% when that's clearly not the case. Um, and if you then establish that safe environment, yeah. Yeah. that it's not going to be 100%, we have lower expectations, we accept reality, we understand how it is, it is so much easier 
for employees to cope with the situation, that they don't have both the stress of a pandemic going on outside their window, the stress of caring for for loved ones and uh, the worry about themselves while also having to worry about putting up appearances at work. That's just a, a shit sandwich that no one should be served. So I think that if you start there, then what's left is the fact that this is still hard. Everything new is hard and you're not going to learn anything overnight. And you have to give yourself also a bit, a bit of leeway in that regard um, that, okay, now you're in a new situation. It's sort of like starting a new job in a slightly different industry. There's a bunch of things for you to learn. And you can't expect that like on day two, you're going to be a pro. So there are things you can do to obviously learn it. There are things you can do to to be better about it. And I think part of it is, I just wrote something up to the whole company today about this, is we have to find a rhythm. At Basecamp, it's been about a month since um yeah i mean we already were remote but it's been about a month where a bunch of people at the company were quarantined by their governors or the prime ministers in whatever countries that they were in mm -hmm. and it's easier now it's not easy it's easier. easier it gets a little easier every day but you got to do it and you got to be moving forward on it and and you got to just uh, got to practice it and then at the end hopefully You'll come out on the other side. Maybe you're a little bit better of a writer. Maybe you're better at uh, assessing and clarifying the work. Maybe you're better at, at, at organizing it all. And maybe you're also a little bit better of juggling it. And maybe you come out on the other side and you're going to be happy to get back to the office. There is undoubtedly going to be people who go like, oh, don't want to do that again unless I have to. <laughs> um, there, there's clearly also going to be some people who go like, do you know what? This was actually better. This was uh, how I'd like to work more, more of the time. But it's going to be different for everyone. And either side is, is fine. It's not like we're going to come out on the other side of this and all the offices in the world are going to be abolished. But I do think we're going to see a change. I think we're going to see a change because enough people, including executives, are going to realize that this is uh, an environment that they'd like to work in more, more of the time, maybe even full time, as, as you said, uh, um, some companies simply just switch over. We've had a office in Chicago for about 10 years. The lease is up in two months and we're not going to renew. Uh, we were always a remote company, so mm -hmm. it was kind of easier for us. But we've even come more to the conclusion that having an office just wasn't worth it for us. Is that is your last office then? Then no more bricks and mortar? It's a good question. We've sort of been going back and forth with it, even though I now live out in, in Malibu. Uh, right. The company spirit is in Chicago, and mm -hmm. we would like to have some of that spirit in some brick and mortar somewhere. We don't have any customers coming to the office. and right. So it's more of a symbolic thing. But uh, I don't even know. We're going to let the, the lease expire, and we're not signing up for anything new right after. Okay. Um, so, David, uh, here's how I'd just like to wind this up, is to um, make this practical. So... Uh, let me summarize a few things that, uh, that you or I have said about this. Uh, one is the importance of, um, oh, KPIs or having some agreement on what work is and the, you know, the, the quality, quantity of work, some measurable way to have work. Uh, two is to have some kind of uh, cadence of communication. You know, it could be weekly, could be daily, it kind of depends on the relationship. Um, three, it would seem to have the appropriate tools uh, for, um, for team work and for everybody to get their work done. Um, now, in, in this industry, uh, insurance agencies have agency management systems, most of which are uh, in the cloud. So they're really capable, quite capable of doing most of the kind of day-to-day -day insurance work um, really without adding tools, but then there's other work. There's, you know, if people are working on projects. There's tools that are needed. If people are, uh, communicating, doing uh, video communication tools are needed. Uh, so it does seem that there are, there's some practical elements that people need to, uh, consider to make this work. And of course, in full disclosure, uh, uh, David, your company sells Basecamp, which is an, a, you know, a, um, uh, how would you describe it? A collaboration tool, project management that um, allows people to, uh, you know, to, to work remotely quite easily. Um, yeah, so we call it the all-in-one toolbox for remote work right now. And okay. it, it really just have all the things you need to, to slice up the work, uh, organize the work, communicate about the work, and follow up on the work. Um, and not just the work, but also the whole company, right? So mm -hmm. we 
manage all our projects through it, but we also manage the company through it. It's where all our public announcements go within the company. It's where all of those discussions go within the company. And I think having just one system to keep all that in place is pretty important. What I've seen a lot of companies do right now, they're, they're scrambling to make remote work work. They just keep pulling down software from the shelf. Oh, here's a best uh, in class thing for this. Here's a best in class thing for that. And before they know it, they have seven different software tools that all need to have user management and setup and everything else. And it's just a mess. They don't actually end up making anything better. They end up making everything worse. Um, so that's why we focused on sort of that all in solution. Now, it may not be the right thing for everyone, but uh, this idea that you're going to have a primary system where the source of truth is going to live around these topics, I think really is very important, whether it's Basecamp or it's something else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, David, anything else that you want to, if you had an opportunity to say something to the um, to the principles of the uh, of the independent insurance agency system, what kind of a message would you like to leave with them? I would say the most important thing is when you go remote, don't try to replicate the office. This idea that remote work is just the same thing as the office, but from your home is mistaken. And if you think that a great remote work day is simply a day filled up with a bunch of video conference calls, one after the other, um, you've missed the opportunity. You missed the opportunity to level up your organization and do it better. Um, and the main level, up that I would focus on is replacing all those damn meetings with write-ups instead. Become a better writer, focus uh, status updates, project updates, announcements in written form where people can digest it on their own time asynchronously and you don't need to gather up all the troops all the time. If the one thing remote workers got out of this was a whole lot fewer meetings, I think uh, we're half the way to victory just on that alone. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, well, David, you've been generous with your time and, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, wish you the very best and, and, uh, with the, you know, with the family and the kids, um, stay safe and, uh, look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me on and, and the same to you and yours. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Connected Insurance Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share it with your peers and colleagues. Explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers by visiting agencyrevolution.com and clicking media. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox. New episodes every Wednesday.